0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you stories about music, sports, history, work, marriage, and every sphere of American life. We tell you good stories, redeeming stories, uplifting stories, and tough stories, too. And today, we hear from Jeff Katz. He's a radio host in Richmond, Virginia, and he's also a columnist for the Boston Herald. And here, he shares his deeply personal story about his teenage daughter, Julia, who has what doctors call global developmental delays and disabilities. And all of that means is that she functions physically and mentally at the level of a toddler. Here's Jeff reading a note that he wrote to his daughter.
1: Dear Julia, I'm writing you this note on March the 7th, 2018. Today is the day that you turn 15 years old. It's an interesting day for me and for mom, but it's another day for you. You're not like other kids, my sweet. You've never made a big deal of your birthday. You've never asked us for any type of a special gift. Not for your birthday, not for Hanukkah, not for Christmas. You've treated each and every day in the same way. Mom will wake you up and you'll have a smile on your face when you see her. She'll play some of your music and you'll smile even more. You may laugh or giggle or squeal, but there will not be any words. You won't complain about having to go to school. You won't be happy to hear that it is a snow day. You won't celebrate the fact that today is 15 years since you were born. Most 15-year-old girls would be thinking about clothing, college, or a car. By 15, many dads have already had to warn their daughters about some dopey boy. But today, you'll watch your favorite episode of Jack's Big Music Show, enjoy your cereal, and be on the lookout for cookies wherever you can find them. Mom and I know that you will be with us as long as we're alive. But we worry about what happens after we're gone. You have two wonderful brothers, and I pray every day that we have raised them well enough to know that they will need to look after you someday. You may be our middle child, but you'll always be the baby. Even as you get older, according to the calendar, as mom told me yesterday, you are timeless. You'll always be my pipsqueak, despite the fact that the years are flying by. No, we're not exploring potential careers or making plans for your wedding. We're still hoping that we'll be able to help you move from diapers to the potty someday. You live today the same way you did when you were about 18 months old. You don't speak, and you only recognize a few words, but oh, the words that you know. Kisses and cookies. No matter how filled up you are, there's always room for a cookie or two. You don't understand when I ask you how your day was. But you become laser beam focused when you hear the crinkle of the wrapper on a package of something sweet. No matter how sweet that candy, it's still eclipsed by your genuinely sweet smile. So many people live their lives asking for things, demanding things, accumulating things. Most people never take the time to stop and savor a piece of cake or breathe deeply to appreciate a gentle breeze like you do. I hear people in this world use horrible, insulting language to describe kids like you, and I want to shake them, yell at them. Some mock disabled kiddos like you, and I feel like crying. You don't understand their words, but I do. Sometimes I really wish I did not. We never thought you would crawl, let alone walk, but you showed us. Your situation and challenges and disabilities have caused me to question my belief in God on some days and have served to strengthen it on others. You don't speak, but somehow you are able to brighten my days in ways that I never imagined. Without a single solitary word, you've made me a better man and touched countless people. Hearing you cry ties my stomach into knots, but your giggle is truly the happiest sound that I have ever heard. I know you'll never read this, nor would you understand this if I were to read it to you. So let me just say, Kisses and cookies, Jules Bagules. I tell you today what I have told you on every March the 7th since 2003. Daddy loves you more than you will ever know.
0: And thank you for that reading, Jeff. You've made me a better man, he wrote. Your giggle is the happiest sound I've ever heard. On Julia's Unexpectedly Learning How to Walk, Jeff told the Boston Herald that, quote, it was one of the proudest days of my life, one of the happiest days of my life. But I also have to tell you, it's a terrifying situation because Julia is like a toddler. She has no real understanding of, oh, the stove is hot, or I could fall here or trip you there. We're thrilled that she's trying to explore on her own a little bit, and we're terrified at the same time. And this is true for all of us parents, but even more so for Jeff and his bride. Jeff has said that it's tough to realize that he'll never get to embarrass Julia by dancing with her at her wedding. But, quote, she's the best thing that's ever happened to me, end quote. And last but not least, he said these words quote, She's never spoken a word. She's never said a word to anybody. But she's touched more people in her 15 years on this earth than I ever have. Her joy is pure. To me, she's like the face of God. She's the essence of good, and she shares her joy with everybody. And to everyone out there who's in a similar situation, we share these thoughts. Share them to us. Share them with us. Here at ouramericannetwork.org, that's ouramericannetwork.org. Jeff Katz's story, his daughter Julia's, here on Our American Stories. is our american story and it's time for our rule of law series and our own alex cortez brings us this story one that may not seem like a story on the rule of law
2: but is here's dave grohl the front man of the foo fighters and earlier a pretty unknown drummer who joined a pretty unknown band called nirvana When I joined the band, they had this demo
1: that sounded amazing. It sounded huge, and it sounded different than the things that they had done before, and everyone talked about Butch, 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 Butch.
2: Butch Vig, who owns Smart Studios, a recording studio in Madison, Wisconsin? Where Nirvana recorded the demo for their breakout album, Nevermind. Bands like Death Cab for
3: Cutie and Beck did some stuff here. Freddie Johnson did a lot of stuff here. And a lot. The list is pretty extensive. If you go online, you'll see this, this huge
2: list. You're listening to a guy named Phil Parhamovich. And he's saying here because he and I were literally there talking inside the now defunct Smart Studios. And that list he mentioned of who's also recorded here. Includes the Smashing Pumpkins, their debut and breakout album Gish was done here, as was Fall Out Boys, and Soul Asylum, Everclear, Jimmy World, and Tegan and Sarah are also on that list.
3: But when Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana recorded here, I think it was pretty basic. It was just a pretty basic building. I think it was built in the late 1800s as a Jewish grocery store at really? the time. When Butch Vig first came in here, I imagine it was kind of still you know, in some state like that. So this was the room where, you know, Kurt Cobain and all those guys did their thing. Billy Corgan with the Smashing Pumpkins and that's where Butch would have sat and recorded them. They were doing a lot here, starting to kind of create that grunge sound and Butch was really, really that guy.
2: A guy from Madison, Wisconsin of all places, shaping the 90's iconic grunge sound that's most identified with a city 1,925 miles away, Seattle. How did that happen?
3: Somehow, you know, I think when you're in the scene, you just pay attention to the albums that you like, how they sound. They probably liked what was coming out of the studio and sought him out.
2: Conveniently, Butch Vig didn't have to seek out a studio when he recorded himself.
3: Well, he'd started Garbage here. He started his band, Garbage, and they were doing really well. And They moved to L.A., like all big bands do.
2: Now, strangely enough, this story isn't about Butch Vig or about any of these famous people who were in this totally nondescript studio that doesn't have a single solitary landmark or sign marking all the fame that was created here. And not a zip. And why are we talking to this Phil guy, by the way? He's not famous, at least not yet.
3: So, uh, I, the weird thing is I had seen it. I would known about it. The studio's legendary. I knew about smart studios and I kept like trying to find it. And I had, I had been passing it on the road a lot without knowing what it was. Cause it's this ugly derelict building. You know, it's like, the windows are all bricked up. It looks like, this crack house or abandoned place, you know? And I didn't really realize it was that. And finally, someone, I think, pointed out, no, that was Smart Studios right there. I was like, huh. And so the next time I was driving by, i had had money saved up.
2: I had around 100 grand or so. And I was trying to find a house. And Phil, who's a musician, thought to himself, why not live in a famous recording studio? And he was going to until... The police pulled him over for a seatbelt violation.
3: So he threw me in the back of the car and he started to search through my car and just tear my car apart and found my cash and uh, got extremely excited. At this point, he had asked me like a bunch of times, you know, are there any illegal substances in your car? And he like went through a list of like cocaine, marijuana, heroin, methamphetamines, cash, So I'm thinking, oh, wow, is it illegal to have cash in my car? And what's going on
2: here? This is the story of Phil Parhamovich.
3: Born and raised in the Cleveland area, played football, really got into art and music, started recording music, kind of making fake albums with my brothers making the album art, and we'd get up on the bed and do these fake concerts and stuff. And uh, really, was just a sports kid, an art kid, and somehow was like, had the perfect combination of both. It was a mix that some people couldn't quite understand. I started going to school for, I wanted to be a comic book artist. I wanted to do like Marvel comics. When I was a kid, I had established maybe 200 superheroes and we would laminate them with scotch tape and cut them out and play with them. It was our toys, you know?
2: Did you not have much money growing
3: up? Yeah, we were poor. My parents were divorced after about sixth grade. My mom wasn't home very much. She worked and then she went out after work and uh, I raised my sister pretty much alone. And whatever was in the fridge, we had, I think we had a box of frozen pork chops that we ate off of for a while and and uh, it was pretty tough it was pretty
2: pretty gnarly a childhood that's definitely not ideal but also one that can definitely inspire creativity like phil's you almost have to to get by creatively finding ways to feed yourself and have something to play with
3: so i was going to art school in nova scotia at the time and my father became an accountant and he was doing the taxes for the video director of the Browns and they needed an intern they just hired Bill Belichick, the Patriots coach and they needed an intern because they were going to do their own TV show in house they wanted somebody with some art school experience or at least some experience with doing art and graphics each segment had a graphic going into it and they wanted somebody who would kind of have an idea of how to do that and so they hired me to kind of take the tv show responsibility and they hired another guy to do more of the football stuff and it turned out i ended up knowing more about football than anybody in the department so i did all the football stuff shooting practices and editing the tape and but i also did the tv show and everything from interviewing the players to building the sets to editing the segments together and all that so I was totally into it. It was a cool job, except it was the schedule was such a grind. I mean, there was one day a week we didn't sleep. We just worked right into the next day. And Saturdays and Sundays we worked. So from just before the start of training camp until past the end of the season, a couple of weeks, there was no days off. And one day a week you didn't sleep. The other days a week we'd work until about one in the morning, get up and start working again about seven. So it was a grind. I worked there for two years and after those two years I uh, i had had enough and I I was really getting more into music and at that point I wanted to move to Minneapolis. I had gone to school with a dude who was in a band who was becoming very successful in Minneapolis and that scene was really blowing up their Soul Asylum and The Replacements and Husker Du and my friend's band The Hang Ups was right in the midst of all that stuff and knew all those guys and was playing shows with them, so I quit and moved out to Minneapolis and started pursuing music, and then I would work in the spring in NFL Europe, so I'd spend about four or five months in NFL Europe, making money and then coming back and launching into my music stuff.
2: Phil also searched for his dream country house. He'd buy one, fix it up, conclude that it wasn't his dream house, and sell it. This is how he accidentally saved up the $100,000 cash that he didn't keep in a bank but with him and why the police were able to take it from him.
3: I'm not really that into our system of how we do things. I didn't see why a CEO should be making a bunch of money off my money when I could hide it just as well.
0: And when we come back, we continue with our Rule of Law series and what happened to those hard-earned dollars in Phil Parhamovich's car. The cops were interested in that $92,000 and they thought they had every right to take it. And when we come back, more of our Rule of Law series here on Our American Story.
2: Visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org and make sure to sign up for our newsletter. We're going to send you the top five stories of the week. We can either listen to them or read the transcription. ouramericannetwork.org
0: is our american stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show as you well know and this one well this is just as good as it gets we return to musician phil parhamovich's story of trying to buy the legendary smart studios where nirvana smashing pumpkins and so many others recorded and how phil's preference to keep his cash with him was treated like a crime
3: worked out a contract, sent it to him. He signed it, okayed it, I gave him the earnest money. And I think in a couple days, two or three days, I left on tour. Here I had all of my money in this box and it was a lot of money. And the apartment I lived in, they had the boiler room for the whole building in my unit. And they would just allow themselves in whenever they wanted, just like no knocking, no ringing the doorbell, just like, hello, we're here to service the boiler. So I'm getting ready to leave on this little tour I'm like, well, here I've got this studio under contract. So like, I'm super excited about that. My life is just like, woohoo. And all of my money is not really being able to be hit very well. And like, well, I could bring it in speaker. I'll have it with me on stage. So I leave on this trip and I'm starting out in this blizzard, this horrible blizzard. And I was going like 20 miles an hour for six hours through Iowa. Like I was wasn't moving at all. And I finally stopped and I stopped on the, the side of the road by a hotel, slept there for a few hours and I got back up in the morning. I missed my first show in Denver because I just couldn't make it that far. And I was driving on to the next show in Wyoming and I passed this police officer on the right hand side of the road. And I could tell you just stop someone that said K9 unit on his car and uh, I know a little bit how they are, like they like to search people whenever they can. but. I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was going under the speed limit in the slow lane behind a truck at that time. And I remember I had to go to the bathroom really bad, so I was, like, really looking for that next stop. There were high winds on the highway. I'm driving along, and that cop races up alongside of me and is just studying me for a long time. At that point, I kind of felt like prey. Finally, he pulls me over. He comes up and immediately says, could you please come back into my car like to ask you a bunch of questions and um it's like okay well i don't see see why not you know he said he was stopping me for for my seatbelt. he saw i didn't have my seatbelt on i was like well this is kind of strange i just don't don't have my seatbelt on this guy is obviously super aggressive we go back into his car so he starts asking me all these questions well, where are you from where are you going you know what what are you doing what band is it where are you playing so i'm just answering these questions you know they're simple questions into each question he's opposing them he's like well that that can't be true how can that be true and he's like manipulating every question into this kind of doubting thing you know and after a while it started to get just confusing and kind of strange and it just seemed like a real head game was happening so finally he says well i want to search your car with with my dog and uh like, well, that's fine. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't worried. I don't, I don't do drugs, and so I was like, that, that's fine. So he brings his dog up, and he had three tennis balls in his car door. He grabs one of them, puts it in his hand under his sleeve, and I'm like, well, this is interesting. I wonder what he's going to do with that. And he walks up to my car, and this dog is, is just a dumb dog. It's, it's really like not interested in anything, and uh, the dog is just kind of sitting there staring at this officer. And finally, the officer is like trying to get the dog interested in the car. He's doing whatever he can to get the dog interested. The dog has no interest in it. Taking the dog, bringing his nose right up against the door and stuff. The dog's not doing anything. And finally, he takes this this ball and starts to like jerk this ball up in the air to get this dog to play with the ball. So the dog starts to jump. And then he immediately wastes no time, goes to the other side of the car, and makes the dog jump again on the other side. It was clear that he at this point wanted to get on videotape from his car the dog jumping around my car so he comes back he's like well my dog reacted t- to your car I'm like this is escalating this is getting worse and worse and worse and I'm um, like I, you know how did a seatbelt turn into you all of a sudden you're searching my car you're faking it with this ball now I'm getting thrown into the back of your car what's going on here it got really scary at that point. I felt like completely no power to do anything and he started to search through my car and just tear my car apart just like ripping things you know. Finally he started to take apart all of my music stuff and found my cash, got extremely excited, got like hyperventilating excited and came back and was like well I found this cash and blah 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 and like whose is it. At this point he had asked me like a bunch of times are there any illegal substances in your car? And he like went through a list of like, cocaine, marijuana, heroin, methamphetamines, cash, weapons, blah, 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 multiple times. So I'm thinking, oh, wow, is it illegal to have cash in my car? It implied to me that it was illegal to carry cash. He grouped it right in with drugs and weapons.
2: The rule of implication over the rule of law the actual law it made it
3: seem like this could have been illegal i didn't really know and really all i started thinking about was my daughter and being able to see her when i get done with this tour and she means the world to me you know and like any time without her i was like oh my god am i going to be thrown in jail for carrying cash and i just wanted to get back to her at this point so i said well the speakers aren't mine and i lied Then all these other policemen showed up, I think about three or four cars worth, and they were like high-fiving and stuff about the money and laughing and joking. I honestly felt like I was in a dream, and I like more than once pinched myself. I was like, God, if this is a dream, like, please wake up. Like, what is going on? And here I'm watching like my life savings being taken, you know, stuff that I've worked so hard for. So anyways, the cops are, like, done with the search, and they didn't find anything, and it was so funny. They were, like, trying to take the spare tire off the spare and, like, jumping up and down on it, and, you know, like, they had ripped everything apart. They thought so for sure they were going to find something in the car. So they didn't, and finally this uh, detective came up, this plainclothes detective, and he says, well, if you'd like to go, you know, you can sign this waiver, waiving your rights to this Whatever we found And then you can just go
2: The waiver said that the money Would be given as a gift To the state of Wyoming And specifically to their Division fighting drugs First, who Gives money to the government And second, why the Drug division, their stop Of Phil, had nothing To do with drugs He didn't have a single Drug on him and he just made it sound like
3: really simple. And I was like, well, so what if I don't sign the waiver? And he didn't make that sound so simple. He wouldn't really tell me. And I kept asking him over and over, maybe five, six times. What happens if I don't sign it? And uh, he wouldn't say. He, he
2: had would. to say something, right?
3: I mean, at first he wouldn't. He just kind of like, well, it'll be bad. It'll be bad. You know? And I was like, well, what exactly will happen if I don't sign it? You know? He's like, well... He kept trying to avoid it, and then finally he's like, well, you know, we're going to go through your phone, we're going to go through everything, even more in your car. You're going to be here for a long time, probably going to spend some time in jail. He wouldn't tell me, like, why am I going to be here for a long time? I was like, well, why would I be here for a long time? I mean, you've already gone through my car. What would happen? He's like, well, we got to go back to the court. We're going to have to get a, some kind of other thing to make sure we, c- we can search even deeper or whatever. I, it was really unclear, and he made it sound bad. It's hard to in that situation. I was really scared. I was nervous. I had to go to the bathroom really bad for probably over four hours at that point. And that's bad, you know? It's just, I was not in a good state. I was tired from not much sleep the morning before. Just from driving for two days, you get kind of, it's hard to focus. And a couple times I was like, so if I sign this, I can just go. And he's like, yeah. And honestly, I just, all I thought about was her. If I'm thrown in jail for a month, you know, and people are, are talking and saying bad things about me, like, it's going to affect her. And I was like, okay, I guess it's worth it, you know. If I can just go, the 92 grand, I'll just let go and make a fight for it in the future.
0: And when we come back, we continue with this remarkable story, Phil Parhamovich's story, a musician, Cash and his speaker seized by the cops, signs away his rights to the money unwillingly under duress. You'll find out the rest of the story after these messages. is Our American Stories, and now the final portion of musician Phil Parhamovich's story of the police pressuring him to gift his money to them, despite not charging him with a crime.
2: The last few years, you may have heard of a controversial police practice called civil asset forfeiture. Like most things in life, it started out with good intentions, allowing police to seize the assets of, say, drug kingpins, whom they suspect are using those assets to commit crimes. But today, it's gotten so out of hand that a grandma in Illinois had her car taken from her because her grandson borrowed it, was dealing drugs in it, and she didn't have a clue. When she went to the police with her true story, it was too late. They had already sold their car and profited from the sale. Before her grandson even appeared before a judge and justice was served. Grandma couldn't get to work and injustice was served to her. And over a single decade, the Drug Enforcement Agency has seized over $3.2 billion in private property from individuals that they never even charged with a crime. Think about that. You can have your property taken from you without ever being charged with anything. There now is a movement afoot to ban civil asset forfeiture and, at a minimum, have it so that you have to be charged with a crime before your property can be seized. And yet, these government officials can be sneaky and creative creatures to get around this whole ugly debate. They've resorted to taking a whole other path, a side road, to the same goal. They're trying to stop civil
3: forfeiture. The governor keeps vetoing certain things and they allowing to have this waiver where they could kind of get around it by saying, Okay, well, you weren't convicted of anything, but now you're agreeing to gift the state of Wyoming whatever it is we're seizing. It's just manipulation, you know, it's just, it's thievery. Whether you're doing with the fine print or whatever, it's the same thing. I didn't go to any of the shows. (laughs) I was, I just lost my life's savings. I was completely despondent, you know, I was just beside myself. I drove away in a state of like, not knowing what had just had happened. I spent the next two hours probably just collecting myself, honestly, trying to, like, figure out what do I do here. And so I stopped at a McDonald's, got on the Wi-Fi with my laptop, and just started to research. I didn't even know what civil forfeiture was at this point, you know. Now I learned about it. I started to look for attorneys right off the bat. And so I found the Institute for Justice, and Dan Alvin, his name had come up in a few of the the cases and I was already late at night so I couldn't call at that point first thing in the morning I called up I asked to speak to him he answered the phone and I told him what had happened and he says okay that's very interesting we want to help you if we can and from that point on they didn't formally represent me but they helped me every step of the way and they had to vet me they really had to look deeply into who I was and was my story true and They came out here and checked everything out. They went through my phone, they went through my wallet, they went through everything. It was very intense. Right away we started to send letters to the state of Wyoming requesting the money back, claiming that it was mine. And the state of Wyoming just kind of dragged their feet. They weren't going to do anything, they weren't going to give anything back.
2: And yet, Phil didn't have the luxury of dragging his feet with his pending purchase of smart studios and a home. I
3: contacted the person who I made the contract with because we were set to close and all that, everything was going to go forward. And I I told him what happened. And he said, okay, well, why don't I give you a nine month lease? We'll see where your court case is at the end of the the nine months. And that's happening right now. We're at that kind of end point. We got some dates that we have to get my bank financing papers him and stuff but uh so that was that was very cool of him
2: and they basically said to look i mean obviously we like the guy we're trying to help him out here but ultimately if you can't put this money together we will you know sell it to someone else
3: yeah i mean uh that's the reality of of real estate he's got property he needs to sell and i mean one of the unfortunate things is because of this i don't think a lot of people knew this place was for sale and now that this is all starting to come out a lot of people do and they're contacting me they're like hey i wanted to buy a place hey i wanted to buy buy that place so we'll see what happens here um i could lose it i could very easily it's to
2: me it's hanging in the balance it's 50 50. but phil did have one arrow in his quiver that the state of wyoming didn't know about they had no idea that i had representation at that time They thought that he was just some poor yahoo out there that they could take advantage of. And this wasn't just any old representation, the Institute for Justice has 44 attorneys who work full time fighting for the liberties of Americans who don't have the resources to fight for themselves when they're unjustly targeted by their government. These guys have litigated five cases before the Supreme Court and won four of them. Wyoming's government didn't know this when they violated the rule of law again.
3: They had had a hearing uh, in July without letting me know about it. And we had already corresponded about eight times back and forth. You know, they knew everything. They had my addresses, they had my phone number, they had my emails, they had everything. And there was no attempt to contact me so they had this hearing without me, decided since I didn't show up to forfeit my money, and I, I would have been there for sure. And so the case was supposedly closed. This hearing that we asked for was just to reopen it, saying that, hey, we had been in good contact. Uh, you should have been able to notify me, so you need to reopen this case. And we got out there, and it turned out that the judge was on a leave of absence. His wife was ill. So there was a retired judge, military judge, an older guy, 70 some years old, I think. And he showed up there, and in the morning of the court hearing, all of a sudden, one of the senators of Wyoming was
2: trying to call me, one of the House of Representatives was trying to call me. And this sudden rush of interest wasn't accidental. The Institute for Justice worked with the publication Vox to have a long expose on this saga come out the very morning of the hearing. The article had dropped.
3: It was like, boom, oh my God. And there was reporters there and everything. And right before that hearing, because of this article and all this stuff blowing up, I believe the judge pulled everyone to the side and said, hey, let's, let's just get this done. Let's not even worry about why the hearing didn't happen in the first place and not, you know, let's just get this done. We, we want no part of this now. And I think the attorney general in Wyoming, I believe he wanted it to just go away.
2: It then took about three weeks for Phil's life savings to arrive back to him just before he and I met and hopefully in time to be able to make smart studios his permanent home.
3: Hopefully he still is patient, you know, because I just got the check a few days ago. The bank is going to take a little bit to look at things. And, you know, I've had expenses in this last point of time, too, which I have to have to pay off now. So it's, it'll be close.
2: Phil's been busy in what's for now his studio, working away on his other dream. I've been really into electronic music. I started going to
3: Burning Man, I think, seven years ago and really getting into some artists out there. At first, I didn't like it at all. It was kind of like, what is this? You know, I've been this guitar, old school, like old blues, like the oldest Ross blues, fife and drum tradition, which is like the start of blues, really. Then I think after like hearing my John Lee Hooker albums twenty thousand times and Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath. I just you get tired of that, you know. And I really started to get into electronic music. And four years ago I started producing it on my own, but I wasn't up to the state I wanted it at yet. And finally, this past year, I started to produce stuff that I felt like was on par with what I was
2: hearing, and where I felt like, okay, now I have a voice. A voice known as Star Monster. A different voice, but the same voice that is grateful to the Institute for Justice and especially their donors who could be spending their money on fine meals and yachts and instead to freely give of themselves to help hundreds of people like Phil that they've never met.
3: It's just astounded me. It it really has. All the people from the Institute for Justice, the people that wrote me on Facebook, to show their support and started a GoFundMe for me. Like, people are offering like, hey, I'll buy it and you can pay me back. Or like, it's just, it really restored my faith in humanity. When things like what had happened to me happen, it, it really makes you question the world you live in and just, God, you know, what, what am I living in? And it just makes you feel horrible. But I can't believe how many loving, supportive people there are out there. It, it really blows me away.
0: And great job on that, as always, Alex. And what a story. And what a story about the rule of law. And by the way, we always say we support the vast majority of our law enforcement officials who do a fine and an honorable job. But we've always got to watch out for government power, folks. Always. That's what the Constitution was about. And look what happens in a situation like this. The leverage that law enforcement has and the way a rule can be used to raise revenue. And this is when we always worry, folks, when the law enforcement acts like a revenue agent. They're not. It should be about right and wrong and protecting the country. And what a job that the Institute for Justice does each and every day out there, defending an essential right in this country, our property rights. Philip Harmovich's story, our Rule of Law series, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and this next story comes from Lily Danzinger, and this piece was originally written in Psychology Today for her mother and
4: father.
5: I was eight the first time my father and I spoke about heroin. He was working on a sculpture sitting cross-legged on the floor with his curly hair hanging down over his face. I started his bookshelf, perusing the thick art volumes. Tucked between the pages of one, I found a piece of tinfoil folded into a square and marked with small circular burns. I'd never seen one like it, but I had a hunch this peculiar object had something to do with his drug habit. I asked, Papa, what's this? He frowned in the same way he would when I declined to try out a new drawing technique but I knew I wasn't the source of his disappointment this time. Some ten seconds ticked by before he finally answered, That's from doing drugs, but it's from a long time ago. It must have gotten lost in that book. There was another pause, and guilt must have overcome him because he then confessed that the tinfoil square wasn't actually from that long ago, though he assured me that he had stopped using drugs again and was doing better this time. Smelling of tobacco and plaster, he planted a kiss on the top of my head and went back to chiseling a block of wood. I knew from a young age that my parents were heroin addicts. It doesn't take the world's smartest kid to figure out the purpose of a methadone clinic, or to decipher loud, tearful arguments about how it's time to stop, muffled by only a thin wall when you're supposed to be asleep. Growing up where and when I did, in New York's East Village and San Francisco's Mission District in the early 90s, their predicament was common. Plenty of people were slowly caving in on themselves, their skin growing sallow and their eyes becoming vacant as they were eaten alive from within by drugs. But despite knowing that my parents struggled with addiction, I had only a patchy understanding of what that meant. Either for them or for the hollow-eyed strangers on the street and in the clinic waiting room. I'd picked up enough from movies and foreboding commercials to know the drugs were bad for you, but I understood it in the same abstract way I knew broccoli was good for you. I couldn't really differentiate between my parents' drug problem and all their other grown-up problems, like making the rent and keeping the house clean. In the years after the tinfoil incident, after my parents split up and my mother successfully kicked her heroin habit, my father and I had an ongoing coded dialogue about his efforts to do the same. He would tell me that he was healthy, which was his way of saying that he was clean. He couldn't bring himself to be completely frank about his struggle, but he knew that I worried about it and he wanted to reassure me. The fact that he told me how he was doing, no matter how euphemistically, made me trust him. It made me feel even more invested as I rooted for him from the sidelines of this invisible battle. I believed in him so intensely that I was probably the only person who didn't immediately assume drugs were involved when he died. I was 12 and living in upstate New York with my mother. He had gone to live in a cabin in the Northern California Redwoods, to be in nature and away from drugs. He died in his sleep. Even though I was across the country when it happened, I felt certain that my father was clean because of the postcards he would sent me, always mentioning how well he was doing and how he couldn't wait for me to visit so we could camp out under the ancient, majestic trees. The autopsy report eventually confirmed that there was no heroin in my father's blood when he died. The coroner couldn't determine a cause of death, which left many open questions, but I had the answer to the one question that mattered to me. As far as I knew, the only way heroin could become fatal was through an overdose, and I took the absence of the drug in his system to mean that his death was unrelated to his many years of drug abuse. I felt vindicated. I spent the next decade mourning my father, Telling everyone what a great artist he'd been and how much he'd taught me about life, literature, and language. That trendy was a bad word, for instance, and overusing like makes a person sound ignorant. My father was the beloved lost, blameless as a saint. While I sprayed the anger I felt over his loss everywhere else, blasting it like buckshot from a shotgun at my mother, teachers and classmates, and later at truant officers and cops. I was furious at the world for taking him from me. When I hit my 20s, I realized that I didn't actually know that much about my father beyond my rosy memories, so I started reaching out to his old friends. The hazy view of heroin I'd had as a child became sharper and more detailed. I learned that he'd been using it with far more regularity and for a longer period of time than I'd ever known. I eventually came to face the obvious. The damage done by poisoning yourself for almost two decades doesn't instantly reverse the moment you stop. A 43-year-old man's organs don't just shut down inexplicably. There may not have been heroin in his system when he died, but that didn't mean heroin wasn't the cause of his death. I started to see his death not as some freak occurrence, but as something he let happen. And I was furious. Letting myself rage at him, at the memory of him, was like releasing a breath I'd held for almost 20 years. As a child, I'd thought of addiction as a big bad demon my parents were fighting to escape so that we could all live happily ever after. Now, I had to wonder how they let themselves get into that position in the first place. How could they have looked at the peaceful face of their sleeping child in one room, then closed the door and gotten high in another? My father was a good parent in many ways. He read me Grimm's fairy tales and Greek myths, cherished my every piece of art, and encouraged me to voice my thoughts loudly and clearly. But all the while, he failed at his number one duty to me, to do everything he could to make sure that he'd stay in my life. The central requirement of being a parent is to be present. All the rest is a matter of style and degree. You can't be a good parent or even a bad parent if you're not there at all. He hadn't really died by accident, I came to realize. He'd committed suicide by neglect, like a lie of omission. In a way, feeling my anger at him has lessened its power over me. The story we often hear about the loved ones of addicts, a pat tale of anger resolving into forgiveness, doesn't acknowledge the complexity of feelings layered upon each other, all of them shifting continually with time. I don't know if or when I'll ever fully forgive my father, but that's okay. Anger hasn't diminished my love for him or my appreciation of everything that was wonderful about him. It's just made him feel more real. It's let me see him with bracing clarity, not only as the adored father I lost too soon, but as a flawed human being who I can now mourn more fully and honestly.
0: And what a beautiful and thoughtful piece. Thank you, Lily, for what you wrote, and thank you for sharing it with us. Lily Danziger's story, her mother and father's story, Khabib, and this is our American stories, and we love talking about everything here on this show, and telling stories about everything. And every once in a while, we love bringing you a really good commencement address. And a fan of this show named Chris Wright had the opportunity to actually give one of these addresses. Chris is an energy entrepreneur. He gave a speech at the University of Colorado at Denver in their Global Energy Management Program, and we found his speech so powerful. And we asked him to record it for us. Here's Chris.
6: The story of energy is quite simple. It is the story of freedom. Freedom from backbreaking toil. What does a human spirit freed from toil create? Our world, the modern world. It is an honor to be here today with you, the very soon to be graduates, when other aspects of your life or screaming for your time and energy, you juggled it all and finished your degree. You all decided that the trade-offs required would be worth it for you. But the additional factor that you may not have considered as much is that not only will you be better off, but humanity will be better off. The plight of humanity has always and everywhere been intimately tied with the availability and cost of energy. Before I say more about the ties between humanity and energy, I will say a few words about three scientists. Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, and James Clerk Maxwell, in my opinion, the three greatest scientists of all time. They all had towering intellects, but the world has been blessed with many towering intellects. What sets Newton, Einstein, and Maxwell apart is that they chose to focus their efforts on critical problems, problems that if solved would profoundly impact human understanding of the physical world. In the late 1600s, Newton took scientific discovery to a whole new level. Newton's laws of motion explained why an apple falls from a tree, why water flows downhill, why the planets orbit around the sun, why the oceans have tides. To explain these phenomena, He had to invent a new mathematical tool, calculus. Many students, including my daughter, are not too happy about that invention. Nonetheless, calculus is an essential tool of modern science, engineering, economics, and business. Newton's insights explain water wheels, windmills, dams, and steam engines, among countless others. James Clerk Maxwell's most important contribution was developing a set of four equations published in 1865, now called Maxwell's Equations. They describe electromagnetic fields. Think light, electricity, electric power, generation, the Internet, cell phones, GPS, etc. Can you imagine a world without these things? Forty years later, in 1905, Albert Einstein had a big year. In that single year, he published four papers that each represented a huge step in human understanding. One paper explained the photoelectric effect, the basis of solar power. Another, E equals mc squared, formed the basis of nuclear power. Another on the atomic theory of matter. And the fourth was that relativity thing. Quite a year for a 26-year-old inspector at the Zurich Patent Office. It is no coincidence that all three of these scientists worked in the field of energy. If you impact energy, you impact human lives. You have all chosen to impact energy. Less than 200 years ago, in our country, life expectancy was only about 40 years. Globally, life expectancy was about 35 years. 2,000 years ago, global life expectancy is thought to have been a little more than 30 years. Only a few years at most were added to the average human lifespan over many millennia. But somehow, we have added an additional four decades to human life expectancy over the last two centuries. Why? How? Of course, there are many reasons, and public health advancements were likely the most critical, proximate cause. But why did those advancements only occur so recently? What was the ultimate cause? I believe that there were two major ultimate causes. First and foremost, the dramatic expansion of individual liberty and property rights in the first half of the 19th century. Expanded individual liberty and property rights replaced mercantilism, a system where kings, queens, governments tightly controlled the granting of corporate charters to only the wealthy, connected, and favored. Mercantilism was replaced with a system where citizens could more freely and equally engage in commerce. This newfound freedom unleashed human enterprise, innovation, and creativity like never before. Most famously in the rapid spread of the steam engine, pioneered in the previous century by Thomas Newcomen, James Watt, to power water pumps, textile machinery, and trains. For the first time in human history, the standard of living of the average person began to consistently grow, and by now has increased in the developed world by roughly 25-fold since 1840 tenfold global humans not only doubled their life expectancy they also became dramatically wealthier and freer we are all quite lucky to be living today and not 200 years ago for economic freedom and human liberty to bear fruit one other factor had to be present energy and lots of of it. Before these dramatic changes in property rights and human liberty unleashed economic growth, nearly all human energy was supplied by biomass. This meant the burning of trees, sticks, grass, and dung, a rather limited energy source that could never power the industrial revolution. Something much vaster, denser, and more uniform would be needed to power machines. Coal was the first to fit the bill, and the rest is history. Sadly, biomass remains the primary source of energy today for over a billion humans who still lack access to electricity and nearly another billion who have only unreliable electricity. Burning biomass not only provides warmth, but it is critical for cooking food. Unfortunately, pollution from indoor burning of wood, grass, and dung kills roughly 3 million people per year. Together with hunger, lack of access to clean drinking water, and malaria, these four killers are responsible for 15 million deaths per year. Bringing affordable energy to the world's poor will be essential to eradicating these four scourges. Advancements in energy have made the modern world possible. From planes, trains, and automobiles to computers, the internet, modern medicine, and wireless communication. Abundant, cheap energy powered air conditioning, which enabled cities to develop in the tropics. Energy allowed modern medicine to spread across the globe. And perhaps most relevant to this room, energy enabled widespread higher education, like University of Colorado's Global Energy Management Program. The British intellectual and author Matt Ridley gives a very fitting example of how advancements in energy and technology have revolutionized something fundamental to education, the reading light. In 1800, it took the average person six hours of labor to earn one hour of reading light from a tallow candle. How rare bedtime stories must have been back then. By 1880, two decades after the first oil well was drilled in Titusville, Pennsylvania, kerosene lamps lowered this by 24-fold to only 15 minutes of labor to earn one hour of reading light. However, that was still a rather significant investment for the average worker. Today, it requires the average worker only a small fraction of a second of labor to earn an hour of reading light. The excuse That I couldn't finish my assignment because I ran out of reading light simply no longer works.
0: And what great storytelling! And that's why we love doing this show, folks, bringing voices like this, stories like this that don't get taught in school. Heck, they don't get taught anywhere. And they are the truth. You're nodding in your cargo. My goodness, that's right. That makes sense. When we come back, more of this commencement speech Chris Wright's story about energy, his own story, really, here Our American Stories, and we return to energy entrepreneur Chris Wright and his remarkable commencement address, a story, in the end, about energy.
6: Coal was the first major source of energy beyond biomass. It powered the spread of the Industrial Revolution, and by the middle of the 19th century, it became a meaningful contributor to total world energy consumption. Oil became significant 50 years later as automobiles and the internal combustion engine burst on the scene. Before long, oil enabled high-speed mass transportation to spread across the globe. Natural gas didn't become a major source of energy until after World War II, as it required a large pipeline network to transport it. These three hydrocarbons, coal, oil, and gas, have supplied over 80% of the US and world energy during my lifetime. Nuclear, hydro, and biomass have supplied almost all of the rest. Today, there is a resurgence of interest in solar, wind, and geothermal, which combined provide about 2% of world energy. My choice of college was impacted by my desire to work on harnessing fusion energy, the energy source of the sun and all the stars. In graduate school, I worked on solar energy, and afterwards I worked on geothermal energy for a few years. There are many potential sources of future energy. However, improving our current energy portfolio is much harder than most appreciate. The biggest energy transformation during my career has not been from a new energy source, but instead within the realm of hydrocarbons. American entrepreneurship, innovation, and determination launched the American shale revolution that has radically altered the American and world energy landscapes over the past 10 years. The shale revolution was simply a different way to execute hydraulic fracturing in older technology and advancements in drilling technologies to tap oil and gas from the source rocks where oil and gas was originally created. This recent revolution has been transformative. Natural gas now heats over half of U.S. homes and provides nearly 40 percent of our electricity. Two years ago it surpassed coal as our largest source of electricity. It is the dominant fuel powering factories and a major feedstock for petrochemicals and nitrogen fertilizer. A surge in the supply of American natural gas not only dramatically lowered energy costs for U.S. consumers, but it is also launching a renaissance in U.S. manufacturing due to our tremendous energy cost advantage over all other industrial countries. The U.S. has now become a net exporter of natural gas In fact, the third largest exporter of natural gas in the world. Quite a reversal of fortune, as only a decade ago, we were building multi billion dollar terminals to import natural gas into the United States. Now these terminals export natural gas. The shale revolution's impact on oil markets has been even more profound. U.S. dependence on oil imports dropped from 60% 12 years ago to 15% and falling today. The more than doubling in U.S. oil production over the last eight years has made the United States the largest producer of liquid fuels, oil plus natural gas liquids, and has supplied roughly 80% of the growth in demand for oil globally over the last five years. The result of a surge in supply is inevitably a price drop, and this has been no exception. Over the last three years, oil prices have averaged about $50 a barrel versus $90 a barrel in the five years before that. Since the U.S. consumes over 6 billion barrels of oil per year, that equates to a quarter of a trillion dollar savings to U.S. consumers every year. Worldwide, the result has been a trillion-dollar annual wealth transfer from oil producers to oil consumers each year, each of the last three years. How can I celebrate the consumer savings when I'm an oil producer? Good question. In a market economy, The primary beneficiaries of innovation are always consumers. I applaud the improved standard of living that comes with cheaper energy, particularly for lower-income folks. We producers have to compete hard to share some small part of the gains from technology. We are indeed fighting hard these days. Likely, the prices of oil and gas have overshot on the downside during the downturn. But a new equilibrium appears to have been arrived, with oil prices still far lower than they were in the five years before the energy downturn. The energy business has always been cyclical and always will be. It is exciting and it is meaningful, but we are forced to live with cyclicality. Enough on energy markets. Today, fossil fuels are viewed by some as the enemy of the environment. But is that true? The United Kingdom is quite wet and lush. It is, after all, the land of Robin Hood's Sherwood Forest. Yet over 85% of the land is barren of tree cover. Why? Because coal arrived too late to save the United Kingdom forests. But it did arrive in time to save the forests of continental Europe and together with oil and gas, the forests of the United States. Fortunately, oil drilling, which began in Pennsylvania in 1859, arrived just in time to save the whale population, which was being rapidly decimated to supply the cleaner burning whale oil that was displacing candles and coal for indoor lighting. Nearly a thousand whaling ships were trawling all four oceans of the world because of the impact this clean lighting fuel had. Kerosene saved the remaining whales, and the whale population has surged in the last 150 years. I'm reminded of those prophetic words nearly 200 years ago from the eminent English historian Thomas Babington Macaulay, who said, We cannot absolutely prove that those are in error who say that society has reached a turning point, that we have seen our best days. But so said all who came before us, and with just as much apparent reason. On what principle is it that with nothing but improvement behind us, we are to expect nothing but deterioration before us? Of course, we have many challenges today with energy and society as a whole, and we are sure to have new challenges tomorrow. But the future sure looks bright to me, particularly as I look out at this group of energetic leaders go forth meet these challenges congratulations and best of luck to you all
0: and what great storytelling and again that was a commencement speech but it was a story folks and make no mistake about it it was a story about modern life the story of energy and that was chris wright at the university of colorado's denver campus and the global energy management program there are so many things our people this great country do for a living and we love to talk about their work because it's important And the people who work in the energy field, my goodness, the work they do matters. It powers the nation, it powers what we do, where we drive, how we transport our loved ones, and so much more. And so again, thanks to Chris Wright, and this is the storytelling you will not get at college or high school or anywhere else. But it's the kind of storytelling we do here on this show. Chris Wright's story, the story of energy and the modern world, here on Our American Stories.
4: To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break.
0: our american stories you're listening to loretta lynn van Lee rose is the record 2004 her comeback record won a couple of grammys we love telling stories about music and musicians and today Shadrach, one of our hillsdale interns tells us the story of the man behind this record one of the great musicians and producers in this country take it away
4: You're listening to Seven Nation Army by The White Stripes. Sports arenas all around the world play this song to get the audience pumped up and ready for a show. And the man behind Seven Nation Army brings the same level of intensity to his daily life. Jack White is a Grammy Award-winning musician and record producer. He's credited with starting the 2000s garage rock revival with his band The White Stripes. Led several other successful bands like The Rockin' Tours, who you may know from their hit song Steady As She Goes and has since had a successful solo career. He's produced albums with Loretta Lynn, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Conan O'Brien. Yes, that Conan O'Brien, the famous late-night host. He's actually a pretty good rockabilly musician. White is famously eccentric, holding a special place in his heart for the old way of doing things. He almost always wears a suit, records his music on tape, and his most recent album, Lazaretto, was the top-selling vinyl record since 1994. It may not seem like there's much competition in this category, but as the vinyl revival continues to build steam, White has shown himself ahead of the pack. Whether you know Jack White or not, you've heard his work. And whether you like him or not, there's something about his dedication to simplicity that's incredibly powerful. White grew up in Detroit, Michigan, in a giant Catholic family, the youngest of ten children. And as good Catholics do, he worked as an altar boy and was accepted at a high school seminary. Not exactly the standard rock star story. And just Google a picture of White and try to imagine a priest. He looks more like a bad Johnny Depp impersonator. He ultimately decided against the priesthood, instead opting to attend Cass Technical High School. Why, you might ask? Well, it was because he bought a new amp and they wouldn't let him take it to seminary. During school, he began working as an apprentice Polster and formed a short-lived band with his upholstery instructor. They called themselves The Upholsters. Original, I know.
7: Pain and the sympathy. Pain.
4: They did one thing that you might call original, hiding 200 records in couches and chairs that they sold to the Detroit population. Only two have ever been found, and that's a lot of Detroit grandmas sitting on music history. Jack's time as an upholster did more than just teach him how to make furniture and rip punk riffs.
7: It was a moment when I was a, an apprentice upholsterer. I was about 15, I think. 15 or 16. And there was a, it was a mid-century modern couch, sort of like a Vladimir Kagan piece, I think. I know I had pink fabric with silver threads in it, and I, it was tempted in the back. It was three staples in the back, just to keep it in place while the upholsterer was working on the front of it. And I just kept staring at this over and over again. I was cleaning up, sweeping up, and then I went working on it, and I just kept staring at it. That's the minimum amount of staples to hold that piece of fabric down. That's, now we can call that upholstered. A table can only, it can have three legs and still stand, but two, it'll fall. So that sort of image has been burned into my brain. I think about that probably once a week, that image of that, those three staples, and it's affected everything. I, I, I forced myself to do anything that I create artistically, music-wise, whatever it is, I force it through the funnel of that idea. I looked at it as a way of limiting myself so that I could create more things, create more songs, because I'm so boxed in. My brain is forced to work with the tools that are at hand.
4: From that moment on, White's artistic life followed two principles. Number one, the number three. He calls himself Jack White III, owns Third Man Records, and toured under the name Three Quid in the UK. And of course, number two a dedication to simplicity. Dan Rather of Access TV interviewed the famously private Jack White on this topic and so much more, delving deeper into White's insistence on simplicity and the older things. White's transition to the music business with the White Stripes relied heavily on this dedication to simplicity.
7: For the longest time, I was determined to only use cheap and broken pawn shop type guitars. Guitars made of plastic and cheap wood that were out of tune. To make it the job harder on myself on stage, instead of easier, so that I'd have this wall to break through to get some to get somewhere better, you know. And if I could accomplish that on stage, if I could pull off a song with an out of tune guitar, that's then I know I was getting somewhere, you know. But br- a brand new amp, it always works every time. A brand new guitar, it always stays in tune. I mean, it's kind of it's like shooting fish in a barrel, you know. I mean, I'm all about putting my own obstacles in front of myself. There were only two musicians in the White Stripes. His composition
4: focused on driving and memorable riffs. His singing was less about performance and more about raw motion. Part of this focus on simplicity stems from his humble
7: beginnings. I hate to label the generation now entitled, but it feels the sense of entitlement that's around nowadays seems to be something that kind of bugs me enough to want to try to overcome it. I don't see beauty and teenagers all sitting next to each other, texting and not talking face to face, you know? I don't see, you know, that beauty in, in the way that pop music is all recorded on computer and auto-tuned and, and presented in that, in that really plastic way. I guess I just do my best in whatever I do to, to try to to try to defeat those ideas and, and present it in, in, into something I think is at least an attempt at getting at truth and getting at beauty.
4: White's most recent album even includes a song titled Entitlement, which focuses on the importance of self-determination and hard work. And that's a lot coming from somebody who's spent a long time working as an upholster.
7: In a time when everybody feels entitled, why can't I feel entitled to? Somebody took away my God-given right, I guess God must have gave it to
4: you. Even with these self-imposed restrictions, the White Stripes became a massive success. Catapulting White from a Detroit technical student to a household name. All this time, White continued to rely on the simplicity of his work and lifestyle. However, White's greatest source of simplicity was not himself. He relied heavily on someone else.
7: Who knows where songs come from? You just have to sit there and I always feel like, you know, Michael Jackson said one time, you have to let God in the room. I think that's exactly true. You have to sit there and relinquish all control. I think people think When you write and you create, you're the person in control and you're making all this happen as if you're, you know, some kind of magician or something, but it's not really that. You sit there and you become an antenna and you just let things happen through you. And the more you let it happen, the more you relinquish control, I think the more beautiful it is. It becomes something that has almost nothing to do with you. And the songs, if people like the songs and they get played on the radio or sold at stores, it's almost like I, I, I had nothing to do with it. And I love that feeling
4: white's catholic upbringing never quite left him and even though he stopped attending mass his music continued to rely on his relationship with god white believes that the spiritual nature of music involves getting closer and closer to god's creation
7: in your best moments creating music and being involved as that antenna to create music your best moments you're imitating creation from nothingness which is only god can do only god can create the universe from nothing And we're just creating from pre-existing materials. So if you build a house or you're an architect or designer, you're building with wood and steel and plastic and all that, you're using pre-existing materials that were already here. Look what I did. I made this pyramid or I made the Empire State Building. Compared to God, it's like big deal. So what, you know? But in music, you're creating from nothingness, but you're not really using any materials. You're just, you're making something exist that didn't exist before. And that's probably as close to God as you can get, I think.
4: Even though White never attended seminary, he believes that he can have a similar impact with his music.
7: Any calling in my head to, to preach on a pulpit or something like that comes out through what I can do on stage and present, present in that way. Because I don't, I'm not like an actor who joins a Broadway play and I follow a script and there's uh, a director there telling me how to do it and what we're all trying to accomplish, playing a part. I'm making it all up on my own, on stage, on the spot. I don't have a set list and I just, I do whatever comes naturally to me. So that's very much like a preacher who preaches from the hip at a Baptist church. It's, it's the power of the Holy Ghost that's involved in them, helping them connect with other people. And I think that's what I'm trying to aim for on stage is to try to get someplace so far away from me and, and connect with them in some way that makes sense.
4: With his unique combination of intensity, simplicity, and a reliance on God for inspiration, White's career has been nothing but successful. And at the core of his work, he hopes to accomplish something incredibly important.
7: What I'm aiming for is the truth, because the blues is the truth to me. And the truth doesn't mean, you know, that that story happened to me and I'm telling you about it. You know, basically, you know, when they say in the in the the Founding Fathers said the pursuit of happiness, you know, they didn't say you know life, liberty, and happiness. They said life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think that's the same thing. How I'm thinking about truth in music, it's the pursuit of the truth. I'm at least trying to get there, and maybe you might get something out of it too if you're listening to it and you can relate to it in your own way. But I'm not telling you anything about myself and saying you know don't make the mistake I made or do what I'm doing or anything like that. I'm just saying this is a story and this is a character and he's doing something or she's doing something. And we're trying to get to something truthful that makes sense.
4: At the end of the day, like all good musicians, Jack White is a storyteller. In fact, one of his band's names is the Rockin' Tours, literally meaning the storytellers. And as his career continues to span different genres and icons of the industry, he's always told stories. White plans to continue his search for truth on and off the stage, always with his signature old-world flair and driving guitar riffs. For Our American Stories, I'm Shadrach Straley.
0: Great job, as always, Shadrach, a Hillsdale intern doing professional work. Jack White's story here on Our American Stories.